going to turn to a number of scriptures. Tonight, you can make your way to Matthew chapter 2, so you can just turn, start going towards the right till you hit red letters. Uh, you're there uh, at that point, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, if you've got your own notepad, great. If not, I encourage you to grab a piece of paper in front of you there. Grab a pen, take some, take some notes, some of the thoughts you may want to look up later. We encourage you to, to open your heart to his word, allow it in here, but then to contemplate it throughout the week and see what he desires to do. So we desire to help people find Christ, find community around him. And uh, tonight, this is part of that. So let's, uh, let's jump in because we got a little bit to cover tonight. Last week, we talked about the stranger in the manger. And uh, it was fun because as I was prepping for it, working with our teams, they were like, what is this? Who's the stranger? Like, who is that? They, they, they weren't sure who to be expecting. And as we talked last week, we realized that Jesus himself, uh, we know who G- that Jesus was the one in the manger, but he was a stranger to a number of people. He was a stranger to the world he came to. It says he was a stranger to his own people. They didn't recognize him. Uh, and we encouraged people to consider the fact that he was, he was no longer a stranger to his followers and uh, that's the cl- a clue for us. Is he a stranger to you? Do you truly know him or do you just know the story? And we encourage people to read the gospel of John and I encourage you to continue doing that. Read the gospel of John with this lens of saying, I, Lord, I just want to know you. And the three gospel writers, they write about the account of Jesus' birth and they tell us some different facts. We said that last time Matthew wrote about how it happened. Uh, Luke wrote about when it happened. And John wrote about who happened. He wanted people to know that the, the, the person that came to the planet, who he was, so there would be no mistake. And uh, we talked about that last week. If you missed it, challenge you to go and listen to it. We don't have time to cover it tonight. But those same three guys who wrote about the stranger in the manger also wrote about danger in the manger. And I've never heard a sermon called Danger in the Manger before. How many of you have? Perfect. And you won't know where I copied it from. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, the danger in the manger is not a thought that maybe any of us have had and maybe you even look at it and say, it's kind of an odd title. You look at the nativity, it's just so, it's just so sweet and, 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 and cute and nice. Like, what do you mean danger in the manger? And I want to uh, take a look at that tonight. How could such a sweet little nativity scene, how could the Jesus from that be dangerous? And so if you're taking notes, write down these, this, this is your first point tonight. He was a danger to the throne. He's a danger to the throne. Matthew reveals the details in his account, so we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to read a couple of verses there. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the new king? Where's the new king that was uh, of the Jews? He says, we saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him or pay him homage King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. So he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and he said, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They said, in Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you're not least among the the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler is going to come out of you who will be a shepherd for my people Israel. Verse 7, so then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, oh, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for this child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too, or so that I can go and pay homage to him as well. And then just skip to verse uh, 16. It says this, after they duped him and didn't tell him, Herod was furious. 
when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. We read these accounts, and it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a messy story. But what we find out is that a new king is always a threat to an old king. I loved watching nature shows when I was a kid. You know, they'd have these lions, you know, they'd, they'd be, the guy would be talking and talking about the pride and all of a sudden, then this new young lion has arrived and they give him names. Like it's Simba and he's singing, I just can't wait to be king. And he gets there and now all of a sudden he sees the, the old lion, you know, who's been the king of the jungle uh, and the savannah and the plains for, for years and years and years. And, and he's, they, they get to this spot and they, they paint this picture of the fight. And you know, the, the, I don't know how often the old one wins, but they never show that part. It's like it's the, when the young one comes and takes over this, the, through this epic battle. There's a danger uh, of, uh, to, the, to, the, to the old king. You know, I love the story of Narnia and the, in, uh, in the, um, the later the books, they have the, the prince, the lost prince who comes back to take the throne from his uncle. It's his rightful throne. And of course, the uncle had tried to kill him because they didn't want there to be an heir that was going to come back and take the, take the throne. You read through 2 Kings, you see it over and over and over. A king comes in, it's like, well, kill all that guy's kids because we don't want somebody coming later on to take the throne. And that's the, that's the kind of the mindset that Herod was raised in. Here he is, the king, and all of a sudden he hears about a new king. And he right away thinks his throne is in jeopardy. And it says he's deeply disturbed. Disturbed enough that he goes and has all the little children around uh, Bethlehem, all the little boys killed to protect his throne. He didn't want anybody taking his throne. And we know from the historian Josephus that Herod actually was so paranoid, he killed three of his own sons. Because he was worried they were going to take his throne. And then when their mom was like interjecting, trying to protect he had her killed too. This was a guy who was so concerned about his own earthly throne. See, we have the benefit of being able to read the rest of the story. And we read the rest of the story after Herod died and Jesus grew up. We find that Jesus had no interest in Herod's throne at all. He didn't want to be a puppet king, you know, who was serving a Roman emperor like Herod was. He had no desire for that. His eyes were set on something much greater than that one throne. He wanted every throne of every heart. That's what he was after, and he wanted every human heart could care less about Herod's physical throne. And you know, this week um, I finished, like, we're reading through the whole New Testament with a, a bunch of our men's, uh, in our men's group, and we got to the end of 1 John this week. As I was reading 1 John, 1 John ends in a very strange way. You're just reading through the whole thing, and it doesn't, it doesn't end with, a, like, a typical goodbye. You know, as he writes this letter, it's, it's like he's writing and almost gets to the spot where it's like he runs out of papyrus, and there's like, oh. Okay, well, there's, nothing, there's no more space to write, so I guess that's the end. Put a period. Because it ends like this. 1 John 5, 21, he says, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. That's it. Some it writes, Dear children, stay away from idols, is how some translate it. And that's kind of the end of the thing. And you're like, it's kind of a, an abrupt ending but it's also meaningful and it's also memorable. You know, we always, we typically remember the last thing we heard. Like I'll ask people after a message, sometimes they're like, oh, that was a good message. I'm like, hey, what part did you like? Oh, the discussion questions. Because it's the last thing they heard, right? And they're like, it's what they remember. And here John, he leaves us and he's like, hey, if you forget everything else I said, keep away from anything that may take God's place in your heart. God's place in your heart is, is meant to be his. And he alludes to the fact that there's all kinds of things that could try and take that. 
and that we are to surrender the throne of our hearts to him. And if we do surrender the throne of our hearts to him, then everything else that wants to take the throne, there's a danger in that manger for it. The love of money, well, there's a danger there because he wants that part of the throne. You know, our own will. Oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And he's like, no, I, I want that as well. I want to lead and direct your life. You know, our own self-preservation, our own selfish pride. He's like, no, I, I want that part of the throne as well. And we think about, you know, the very first people at the manger, they recognized the danger in the manger. And for them, the story happened, it began actually nine months earlier. Because we know the first ones there, Mary and Joseph. But think about their story for a minute. Because God wanted the throne of their hearts. And here we, here we learn, uh, if you're in Matthew, just go to the right. Go to Luke, Luke chapter 1. If you can get there quick enough. Luke 1 verse 28. It's, the, it's, it's when the angel first arrives to Mary, and it says this. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord's with you. And look at her response. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. And he said, Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You're going to conceive and give birth to a son. You'll name him Jesus. He will be very great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he'll reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom uh, will never end. You hear this? You hear this? Uh, this statement from the angels, like, "Hey, this your baby's going to get a throne. He's going to get the throne of David. He's going to get the throne over the nation. But before he can get that throne, I need to get this throne. Before any of that can happen, God's like, Mary, I need, I need the throne of your heart. I need to be the one sitting here. I need you to trust me." I need you to trust me. And we see Mary. Get a picture of Mary. Mary. Well, it's not the picture of Mary, but it's a picture of what Mary may have looked like. You know, here's Mary. And she's like, she's disturbed by this. This is like, it, it troubles her. Why? Because there's a danger in that very statement the angel makes to her. She later even asks, how can this even happen? Like, what you're describing to me, how can it happen? And just picture this. We'll leave it up there. Picture an unwed mom. You know, today's culture, it's pretty common. Back then, social suicide. Here she knows that people are going to like, be looking down on her. She's likely going to be ostracized. She's probably going to be ridiculed. And she's going to be judged for something. And she knows that because that is the, was the proper response to, a, to a, a pregnant young woman at that point. That, that went against everything God stood for. And she's like, I'm going to face all of that. For something I didn't do. I'm going to get all the judgment, all the ridicule, all of this for something I didn't do. And in order for that, I'm not sure what this looks like, Lord, but I surrender my heart to you. You can have the throne of my heart. I trust you, Lord. And it says that she walked that out. And then you think about Joseph. Matthew actually tells us that Joseph's just a normal guy. He's trying to live a normal life. He's kind of the guy, you know, we, we see him so often in the background. It's kind of where he wanted to be, just a background, a background type of person. He's not, he's not trying to be famous. And then he finds out this lovely woman who he can't wait to marry is already pregnant. And he's there. And, it, and in that moment, he's processing all of that. And he's like, okay, what, what do I do now? 
You know, my reputation's on the line. And he's like, what are people going to say? You know, if, if I say it's mine, well, then they're going to think I'm dishonorable. Like, I, I had no self-control. And if I say it's not mine, they're going to think I'm a fool for staying with her because it's not how this should go. And he's, he's wrestling with it in his mind. And we know that because Matthew tells us. But the Lord wanted the throne of his heart, too. And so it says in Matthew 1, it says, Joseph, to whom she was engaged was a righteous man, and he didn't want to disgrace her publicly. Here's a good guy, a good guy. The Lord wants his throne. So he said he decided to break the engagement quietly. Verse 20, as he considered this, as he's thinking about it, as he's pondering, he's deliberating it, it says an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, just like she told you. And she will have a son and you, Joseph, you are to name him. I know you think you want to get out of this. I know you're pondering it. You don't, but Joseph, I want your heart because you're a part of the story. You're the one who's going to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in that moment, Joseph surrenders the throne of his heart. He's like, Lord, I don't know what's coming, but I trust you. I trust you. You know, we read, we read this story in seconds, but this was months and months and then years and years for this man to walk this journey. We read about it in inches, and yet it's miles and miles that he has to travel to uh, Bethlehem, and then to Egypt, and then to Nazareth, and, and, and always, you know, we, when you read Joseph's story, you find out he really is a real guy. He's not some superhero, because he goes in those places, and he's like, he's scared, but he trusts the Lord anyway. And then he's scared, but he trusts the Lord anyway. And he keeps saying, you know what, okay, Lord, basically he's saying, Lord, you have the throne of my heart, I trust you. And to be honest, God is still after the throne of every person's heart that comes in contact with the manger. There's danger in the manger for every throne, including everyone in this room tonight, including myself. He wants this throne. And we just sang those words, let every heart prepare him room. Too many of us were raised in the the day and age where it was like, just invite Jesus into your heart. Just say a prayer, you know, and and then you're good. You're going to heaven. Just invite Jesus in. And, And we give Jesus a little place of our heart. He doesn't want a little place of our heart. Any idea how much of it he wants? Yeah. Did you hear your own voice? All of it. Man, I wrestle with that. I do. He he wants all. And we're like, that, that's not just like some, some clever sermon, you know, illustration or point. Matthew 16, Jesus says, it's Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, if you truly want to follow me, you got to give up your own way. He says, you got to deny self. You got to deny you. You know, your throne, you living your life, your own way, making your own decisions on, on just about everything. He's like, I want that why he said things like trust in the Lord with all your heart in all your ways acknowledge him and then he'll direct your paths there was this allness of what he desires because it's the throne he wants and many of us fail to realize that danger is in the manger for all of us he wants the throne second he's a danger to the darkness I love this thought you know Matthew tells us about that John tells us about this 
that Jesus himself was a danger to the darkness. It wasn't just the earthly rulers that felt the danger of his arrival. It wasn't just Herod who was like, you know, trembling, realizing, oh no, there's a deep disturbance. There was a deep disturbance in the spiritual realm as well. Man, all of hell is on high alert when this child shows up in a manger. Because darkness had been their domain. The world had been in darkness. It was their domain for so long. There were glimpses of light, but there was never this. There was never this. You know what darkness, darkness is interesting. Darkness is like, it's so deceptive. You know, it's with young kids. It's with old kids, whatever. It's the same thing. Um, Darkness has this, uh, this ability to make things appear bigger than they are. And closer than they are. And scarier than they are. You know, as parents, like the kids are like, oh, there's just something other than you turn on the light and all of a sudden, oh, you know, it was just my pile of dirty socks. You know, I thought I thought I was going to eat me. We're like, throw them in the hamper, right? But then there's big kids like me, right? The other the other night, man, I hear the coyotes just howling and they're just like they were like outside my window. I'm like on a second story and they're right there on my driveway and they were the size of timber wolves or, you know, little bears. They were huge in my mind. Then I get to the window, can't even see them. You know, and I look in the next morning, you know, the seeing, seeing you know, where the, the mud was all around my chicken coop, little tiny footprints, right? I'm just like, man, you know, I thought, I thought they were going to be these massive things. Why? Because Darkness has this deceptive ability. And I don't know if you realize that. It's happening to us all the time. The darkness around us is always trying to keep us in darkness. And it was kind of interesting. You don't see coyotes very much during the day because in general, they're actually more scared of us. You know, it's that thing of we can, that fear that we feel is, is, is the opposite. And I don't know that we realize it's the same in the spiritual realm. That in the spiritual realm, the enemy is just like, let's cloak them with darkness. Because if we cloak them with darkness, they will think we are more powerful than we are. Don't let them know about the danger in the manger because that is dangerous for us. And John describes how Jesus arrives as light coming into that darkness. We see it in John 1. John 1 verse 4, the word gave life to everything that was created. His life brought light to everyone. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Man, that's just the end of the darkness's ability. doesn't matter what darkness we face in life. His light has already declared victory over it. There is no opportunity for it to win in the end. It cannot extinguish it. The domain of the demons, the dominion of the devil were in danger from that moment and they knew it. Anybody old enough to remember Carmen? Yeah, hey Carmen. This is uh, this was Carmen. Carmen's had this song called "The Champion," and he would he would masterfully paint the picture of like a boxing ring with the with the Lord uh, with Jesus versus the devil. And he'd have this part where you could hear the demons all hissing, and they're like, you know, what's going on? Like, where's all this light coming from? And and they're getting all concerned. And and then he just you know the music goes and the the bell, and you see Jesus ends up being the champion of this of this fight. And, and I was like, as I was picturing that, I'm like, that's happening all over the place. This murmuring of the enemy, this, this fear, this, this, they knew from, from, from when time began, they knew that there was a, <laughs> that Jesus was coming. There was a savior coming, but in the manger is when it got real for them. The manger was actually an echo of the first promise that God had ever made to humans. 
And it was at the time when darkness had first started, you know, got a little foothold in the Garden of Eden. God makes this promise, and we see it in Genesis 3. So if you want to join me, just go all the way back. It's an easy one to find. Go to the very beginning of, of the, the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Here's the very words, Genesis 3, verse 14. It's after Adam and Eve have taken the apple, and now they, it's like they all got called into the principal's office. Adam and Eve and the serpent, and they're all there. And here's what the Lord says to them. He had, he had said something to the man, the woman, but then he says this, Then the Lord God said to the serpent. Who said it? The Lord God. Meaning, whatever he says is going to happen. He says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, because you've tempted them, because you've led them astray. You're cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You're going to crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I'm going to cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking of Jesus. And he says, he's going to strike your head and you'll strike his heel. He's going to strike your head. You're going to strike his heel. And they knew for, for, for all the rest of time until the manger, they knew that that was coming at some point. God had spoken. They knew it was going to happen. They're powerless over it. And you know, it's that realization when the manger happened, it was like the lights turned on in their realm. You ever had it where you're sitting in the dark and somebody turns on the lights? What happens? What do you do? You react. Nobody sits there and be like, oh, that's cool. You're just like, shut it off. Like, ah, you know, there's a strong reaction. It's exactly what happened when light entered this world of darkness. There's a great reaction. And, and you know, we see it, we see it uh, just shown through the rest of the New Testament. Listen to these, listen to the men and women who were there. Peter in Acts 10, you can go and read the whole stories. I would encourage you to just going to give you the tidbits of what they said. Peter said in Acts 10 38, he says, you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He's like, they're oppressed by the devil, and he's here to heal, for God was with them. John said it this way in 1 John 3, for this very purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Here's why Jesus came, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Romans 16, 20, there was a song back in the day, maybe you remember it, Romans 16, 19 says, and it ends with like, oh, whatever, something like that. It's big at youth conferences. Yeah, be excellent. Hey, I know, man. Lance, you can sing it with me. Um, but he says this, that the God of peace is going to soon what? Crush. 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 Like we said, we heard before, oh, he's going to strike, you know, you're going to strike his heel. He's going to strike your head. No, no, he's going to like crush your Head. He's going to crush Satan underneath your feet. Not only did he defeat Satan uh, himself, he's like, he defeated him on your behalf. And he's like reminding the believers, listen, I know what you're going through is tough, but it's not far off that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This was no cute little nativity scene to the powers of darkness. That night, they recognized right away that there was danger in the manger. They recognized something so powerful in that little package. To them, it was like dynamite. It's not very big, but man, can it cause a lot of damage. And they saw it. And I know as we share that and realize that, you know, lights come, darkness is defeated. Some of you sitting here tonight would just would join me and say, you know what? I, when I look at the world, I don't think that that's how it's going. 
I look at it and I think it appears like darkness is still winning. I see people still suffering. I see, I see things still not going the way that they should be going. It doesn't, it doesn't look good. It still looks like darkness is winning. Like how do you, do I just take that this book said this? Let me give you two thoughts to think about. Number one is the story's not over. Okay, the story's not over. I was reminded of a tale from uh, 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 an African village where there was a, uh, people, a wife had run up to her husband and said, there's this massive python in our, in our little grass hut. There's no way we're getting him out. And the man just simply went over, took his gun, saw the python in there and shot it in the head. Well, that python starts just, you know, convulsing and destroying all kinds of stuff in that, in that little hut. But they knew they were safe and it was over. It didn't matter how much noise was going on. It was over. And I think the very same thing is happening in our world today. When Christ hung on that cross and said those words, it is finished. It was that I know I somebody got it. Whoever's clapping, God bless you. That is what's happened. It's like the bullet has gone into the head of the serpent and now it's just writhing until it can do only so much damage, but it is done. And I think sometimes we have to be reminded of that because we face darkness all the time and we forget that there was danger in the manger for that darkness. And we come as like, oh, you know, Lord, please do something. He's like, I did. I did. It's over for that. It is over the end of the book is not yet here. I think about, you know, the darkness of sin and death and hell and the grave. They only have limited time left. That's why we sing that song, man. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. It's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. We'll just throw it on the screen for the sake of time, but you can read along. It says this, then, Paul says, then, and so not yet, but then, then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, then this scripture will be fulfilled, that death, it's swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? He's like taunting it. Oh, death, where's your sting? For the sin of, uh, is this, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, the darkness desires to keep you in the darkness as long as it can, because they realize the danger in the manger for them. Third point, final point. There's a danger in the manger for the disciple. There's a danger for the disciple. And this may seem like a strange thought. You're like, what do you mean there's a danger in the manger for the disciple? It seems strange, but it shouldn't be. You know, until the final bell, until the final bell, the, the, the realm of darkness will be wrestling and be at war, at war with the followers of Jesus Christ. There's a danger for the disciple because you are now pitted against the very, the very uh, forces of darkness Oh, you've joined the very mission of Christ. We think about, you know, the first followers of Christ. Man, it was dangerous for them. Like life-threateningly dangerous. We don't recognize that here. There's, there's no cost to say, hey, I want to become a Christian. Back then, there was serious cost. Luke is the one who gives us these details. We saw Matthew's, we saw John's, here's Luke's. And he writes about it in, the, in his account called Acts. In Acts chapter um, 
11, it's where they first say that he, he writes this, this thing. He says that they were first called Christians in Antioch. The followers of Jesus were first called Christians. That, you know, we, we all call each other Christians. And it's like this, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a, an acceptable term. If I said to you, hey, Bob, you're a Christian. Are you offended? Daryl, you're a Christian. Not, there's no offense in the room. Back then, it was, this, it was like a slur. They were like, it's those people. You know, those, those, those Christian people, the ones who are the, kind of the outcasts of society. We don't want anything to do with those Christians. It wasn't a term that people were like, oh, I want to be one. Think about this. Think about how much the opposite would have been true. In Rome, in Rome Nero blamed the Christians for burning Rome, and then he burned them as torches in his garden hung him up on crosses. You can sort of see it there. Here in the gladiatorial arena uh, where Polycarp, one of the early pastors of the early church, was martyred for his faith. They would gather them in. You a Christian? Yep. Okay, come with me. Why would they say yes when they knew what was coming? They would not deny Christ no matter how great the danger they faced. And it's not just because they believed something they, it was who they trusted in, who they genuinely trusted in. Listen to Paul describe a life of following Jesus to the Corinthians. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, yes, we live under constant. Yes, we live under constant danger. Man, we, <laughs> Paul recognizes there's danger in the manger for a disciple. He says, we live under constant danger of death. Why? Because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. We live in the face of death, but what? This has resulted in eternal life for you. Man, Paul's like, listen, we're, we're kind of at death's door every single day because we follow Christ, but it's worth it because guess who's a follower of Christ now as a result? Someone else. There's someone else who's going to live eternally in heaven because Paul faced the danger. 2 Corinthians 11, he repeats it again. And I didn't have time to read the whole thing. Go and read it. It's much, much more. But Paul says this, I've traveled on many long journeys and I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I have faced, what did he face? He, he's making a point. He's repeating, he's like, man, we face danger everywhere because we follow Christ. How about you? I face danger at Walmart. You know, I, I face danger at that gas station. I face danger when I came down for breakfast. <laughs> How many of you, the last time you faced danger for being a Christian was never? Uh-huh. You and me, JD. <laughs> face danger. I face danger from men who claim to believe, be believers, but are not. Think about this. Here's, here's Paul's big speech. I face danger here. I face danger there. I face danger here. I face danger back there. I face danger everywhere I go. You want to join me? You want to join me? You want to be one of those followers of Jesus? And we're like, Paul, I don't think that's the, great, the greatest advertising strategy. You know, the slogan, this is going to be dangerous. You in? And yet, as I thought of that, 
I'm like, it is the worst strategy ever. And yet incredibly successful. Why? Why? You know, the more that I thought about it, I wonder if that understanding of the danger of following Christ didn't stir up passion in the people who followed him. I wonder if these people who saw others face fear but were not mastered by it were like, I want that. I face fear all the time, but I'd rather face it and not be mastered by this Paul. What do you have that I don't? The believers in Rome saw Paul rotting in a prison cell, but he was rotting and writing, and they were like, there's something different about this prisoner. And as a result, their faith was encouraged by his imprisonment. Wrote about it in Philippians chapter 1. And I thought about it in our day and age, and I think about the young people, but especially the young men of our day and age. They're searching for meaning and adventure. And do you know where they normally find it? In places that are dangerous. You laugh because you're old enough to remember what it was like. We live in such a sanitized world right now. I'm like the helicopter dad almost. Like, like to, to, you know, my rules are be safe, have fun in that order. And usually there's no fun as a result. <laughs> my kids tell, tell me all the time. But think about this. Man, isn't it that stirring in, the, in, in young people to say, I want to have a story to tell? Maybe we should ask the young people. Is that like something? Be like, they're like, we don't know what to answer. What, what, what else are you going to say? But I was, at, I was at Christmas dinner today, earlier, sitting with my nephews. And my nephews, I'm like talking to them about some stuff and asking them about this, this event that happened this summer. And they're like, oh, buddy, we have videos to show you. I'm like, oh, okay, show me the videos. And they show me the videos of these, like, all, I don't know, 15 of them, all driving around in field cars, and the ones that didn't have field cars were on quads, and the ones not on quads were in side-by-sides, and some are hanging out the back. It's night. They're driving recklessly through the fields with Roman candles shooting each other through the windows. I, I know, some of you are like, wait, wait, why wasn't I invited, right? No safety glasses. I'm watching this. No seatbelts. No roll bars. Some of them are swerving, and it was like, oh, there was a guy there. And shooting a Roman candle. One guy got the, sh- the candle like in the pocket, and he's burning, like, burning him. He's like, oh, awesome. I have a story to tell. I survived. I know. My family, I know. So I was asking, wasn't that dangerous? And they're like, mm, yeah but it was awesome. You know what I think about? I, I, I think, that, I'm not going to say it that, that's for them specifically, but I wonder if that's not why, you know, we have so many y- young men going off on these reckless kind of adventures when they don't, have never realized that a life following Christ should be the greatest adventure of all time. And some of you are looking at it like, uh, I don't think it is. And I think that's where we've missed something huge. I think it's where we've missed something huge. And if you're young here tonight, I think it's this living a life for Christ may seem boring in people's eyes, but it never should be. When I think of the great men and women who followed Christ in the scriptures and throughout life, it was anything but boring. I was talking to somebody this week, like, we like coming to your church, you know, because the messages aren't, you know, too boring. Um, it's kind of exciting. Not that Christianity has to be exciting. And I'm like, what do you mean Christianity? Doesn't? <laughs> it is the most exciting story ever told. 
It should be the most exciting thing in our life, and yet I wonder if we've missed it because we're scared of dangers. Let me finish with these thoughts. I sometimes wonder if we've sanitized the message way too much. Because we did it for kids' church, right? Let's, in kids' church, let's create this little nice nativity. Let's dress up the kids in the little Christmas pageant. Let's let it be so cute and never tell them that there's a danger in the manger, that he wants the throne of their hearts, that the darkness has been crushed as a result of what happened there, and that they can walk out on the greatest adventure if they would embrace the danger of following Christ. No, 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 no. Let's not tell them that. It's just cute and nice. You know, you see the, the crucifixion. Man, we've sanitized that so much. You see pictures of it, especially for kids, right? And of course, I get it. You know, they show a picture of Jesus, and he's hanging there. He's kind of got a half, you know, a half sad, a little bit sad. And there's this little dripping of blood, you know, here. It's like, and maybe a little bit of red on poor Jesus. And, ne- and, ne- and never, never ever got to the place where it ever got to what was real. That the understanding of what really happened there, what the sight, what the smell, what, the, what it really looked like. We've sanitized it so much. And you know what I feel that's happened? I think as a result, I think we did it for kids' church, but I wonder if we, as a result, have people with childish faith rather than childlike faith. It's just a childish faith, like, oh yeah, I know the story of Christmas. Oh yeah, I know the story of Easter. And they don't have a childlike faith that says, man, there's danger in that manger and I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to be his follower because of what he did for me. I recognize what he did at the cross, and I will stand on that truth with every bit of my being. It doesn't matter what comes at me. I know what he's done for me. And I would rather than have a wishy-washy, uninspired, boring version of the greatest story ever told, I'd rather be a fully trusting, fear-facing, danger-embracing follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, amen. And I wish that for my kids is that they would have that fully trusting, fear-facing, danger-embracing adventure with Christ. And I want it for yours too. D.L. Moody said this, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man who's fully and wholly consecrated to him. And I aim to be that man. I'm like, D.L. Moody, that is powerful. Do you know that D.L. Moody repeats this later on, close to the end of his life, and he says the world has, or still has yet to see. Acknowledging he also was not that man. And I say it myself, I'm not the man fully and wholly consecrated yet. But how many of us in that spot say, when I aim to be that man, Man, our, our, our nation needs a church and needs believers who are going to be like, we are in 100%. Because there's places on the planet where it is. You know, the young adults had CPAN come and share, and they got to hear about places around the world where passionate followers of Jesus are passionate because otherwise they're dead. They're dead. You know, the underground church of China, the women of the Iranian church, it's incredible what's happening around the world. And people just, man, it is the adventure of following Christ. Man, I want it here. My fear is what it will cost for it to come here. And I also believe that we're not that far off. And I think we were meant to live with the understanding that there's danger in the manger, that we are part of God's mission on the planet, that Jesus grew up to be a danger, a danger to the kingdom of hell. And guess what? We should be as well. You know, when the seven, the seven sons of Sceva, you can read about it in Acts chapter 19, they were these seven brothers who was, went out trying to cast out demons, and they tried to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus, and it didn't work. Um, the demon actually attacked them and beat them up, which is the funniest story ever. Um, strips them, and they run away. It's the seven streaking sons of Sceva. It's a totally different message. But, 
But you know what's interesting in that? They record what the demons said. And the demons said to them, they said, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And man, if they can know Jesus and then they can know Paul, man, they should know our names. The ones who stand, you know, in that same authority of what Christ has done. Said, yeah, you know what? We're going to be a menace to hell to the day that he takes us home. You know, the manger, the manger is a danger to apathetic and lukewarm living. It really is. You know, the, ah, yeah, I'm kind of a Christian. Revelation just says, man, that's the kind he spews out of his mouth. On one hand, I'm sort of following Christ. On the other, I'm totally living for self and sin. You know, that there's truly no room for that kind of living at all. And deep down in our core, I think we want that to be the truth. None of us want that middle-of-the-road experience. And you know what? The middle-of-the-road is the most dangerous place on the road. You got an animal on one side, he can only be hit by the cars on that side. He's in the middle, he can get hit both ways. The middle-of-the-road is the most dangerous place to be. The message of the manger is all in. God was like, I'm all in. I'm going to the planet. I'm all in. I will humble myself and to that, take that, to that, that uh, humanity on myself. I'm all in. Mary and Joseph, they're like, this is scary, but I'm all in. I'm going to trust his plan. How about you? How about me? I think it's a good reminder for us tonight. Final thought. Christmas is not just a fairy tale. It's the true story of danger, a danger to the throne of our hearts and any current inhabitant in it, a danger to the powers of darkness now and forever, and a danger for anyone who wishes to truly follow Christ. It truly is. It's a call for us to go all in, to embrace the danger and surrender to the king. And the message of the gospel, that message of, you know, surrender to him, trust him completely, to be brought into right relationship with him, it does one of two things, and it's doing it tonight as well. It's either drawing you or there's a resistance to it. And it's, I think, I think it's that the longing in us is, is the deepest part of us wanting to know God, wanting to be in right relationship with God. We know he's there. We want to be in right relationship with him. We want to have a true sense of meaning, a value, of purpose, and there's a drawing to it. And in that very same message, there's this resistance, the resistance in us that knows that the darkness in us will be exposed for what it is, that the light will shine on it and will expose it. And we're going to have to humble ourselves in the face of him, of his glorious truth and of his light and say, okay, God, you see it all. I surrender. That we're actually going to have to turn from our self-serving ways and say, okay, God, I was living for me and it didn't work out. I'm going to stop living for my own self-preservation and simply live out of obedience to pursue you. And we recognize there's a danger for our pride. That it's like, oh, Lord, who knows what they may think. But you get to the spot where it just really doesn't matter. Because there's a greater danger to, to succumb to the temptation of remaining in the darkness. And so my challenge for us tonight is to consider the danger in the manger and then second, to embrace it in the adventure of a true life, passionately following Christ. He's all in. Are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for continuing to reveal yourself and your word in different light for us. That is so, so famous, so retold story just continues to speak to us. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming for me. I had no hope without you, Lord. None. 
Thanks for rescuing me. Thanks for opening my eyes to your existence. Thank you for giving me the faith to trust in you. And Lord, I pray that prayer for people here tonight, that they might experience it as well, that the longing inside, the drawing inside, that they would recognize it's you calling them. Lord, that they would say like Mary and Joseph and shepherds and so many, Lord, I trust you. May that simple prayer begin to change their entire life. Lord Jesus, thank you for eternity, the gift of eternal life, the gift of you to enjoy it with forever. Lord, to glorify you. God, I pray tonight that that continues to work out in our hearts and lives by your Holy Spirit. And we give you praise for that in your name. Amen.